Hello and welcome to the 12th episode of Design Education Talks, the collaboration between the team here of the New Art School and the Design Deducts podcast. Our guest today is Derek Jones. Welcome, Derek. How are you doing, Lieutenant? Fantastic, fantastic, fantastic. Good. It's great that you're here. So tell us about you. Wow, okay. Um, so yeah, I'm, my name is Derek Jones. I'm a senior lecturer in sustainable design at the Open University in the UK. The Open University is a distance learning institution. Um, prior to that, I was also a professional architect, 15 years in uh, professional practice as an architect, a developer, uh, and also a bit of a sort of computer visualizer and sort of web designer as well way back when it wasn't very good and you don't want to talk about that so yeah i'm a bit of a practitioner and a bit of an educator brilliant brilliant combination so uh what is it that uh, that you're working on what is it what is it that you're doing today um, so today, well, the past few weeks, obviously, uh, has been spent in uh, sort of COVID-19 response, if you like. Oh, um, okay. And particularly trying to support colleagues who are moving from proximate design education to distance design mm, education. Mm, mm. Um, at the Open University, as I say, we teach at a distance. We have done for 50 years, uh, well, nearly 50 years. Um, and it's a very different way of doing things. So we're trying to help colleagues for whom this is completely new. Um, the analogy that I keep giving to my colleagues here is it's like, you know, we never sometimes see our students physically. So it's as if 40,000 students have just turned up at our front door and were demanding to be taught. Um, that's almost the kind of scale, if you like, of pivot that some people are having to do because design education is so fundamentally, most of it is so fundamentally premised on the proximity model, you know, that you have to be there Absolutely. with the practitioner, you know, the kind Absolutely. of the ex- expert or the apprenticeship model. And, you know, we don't do that. We do not have an apprenticeship model like that. We've got a slightly different apprenticeship model. It's a slightly different model. But we do that from the start. And, you know, we've got 50 years, as I say, experience of doing that. So it's been quite hard to um, get that across to colleagues, how we actually help colleagues make that transition. Um, so, yeah, it's been interesting time since it's, yeah, mm. not, not been a lot of sleep mm. over the last few weeks. But you're at a quite unique place because you have yeah. the practitioner role Mm-hmm. And the researcher. Yes, absolutely. So, what? How? What? Tell us about this transition before we get into more of the. Mm-hmm. Well, the, the transition itself is actually an interesting one, and it's maybe one that'll sort of touch on what people might be interested in this, um, because it's you know I, I I present regularly on how we teach at a distance, you know, to colleagues around the world, and it's usually that first moment you can see it in their eyes, you can see that moment where they go. What do you mean you teach design at a distance? How can you teach design at a distance? You know, what what crazy plane have you got off? Um, that's how I started at the Open University. So I was a practicing architect. I'd actually started studying with the Open University. Um, I started studying mathematics, believe it or wow. not. I've, I've nearly got a degree in mathematics with the Open nearly. <laughs> um, and I was just totally blown away by the fact that they completely flipped all my understanding not just of mathematics, but of education, of how you do education. <clears throat> and lesson one was, look, you're going to be learning. Nobody had told me how to actually do learning before. Um, and as soon as they were that kind of, it's almost like the scales fall away from your eyes. As soon as you have that epiphany, you kind of get into it. You realize that you're doing something different for yourself, and it's a different kind of model, if you like, of education. So anyway, I became a big fan of the Open University, and I decided to apply to do a bit of part-time tutoring. 
because I really wanted to know how do you do this kind of thing? How do you, do you go about it? And I saw this advert for design um, lecturers. Well, it's what we call tutors, part-time lecturers. Yeah. Or lecturers. Um, and I thought, that's crazy. How do you teach design at a distance? This is going to be hilarious. So I applied almost as, I, I kind of out of like sick curiosity thinking this is going to be, it's going to be one of those rubbish online courses you get, you know, this is, this is how you design a house and you get somebody drawing a rectangle and saying, that's yeah, a house. That's not to dismiss because there are some fantastic how to be an architect and how to, there's some fantastic stuff online, but there's also a lot of junk. So anyway, I did that, applied to that. And I got the position um, because one of the interview questions was, how would you repackage a banana? You know, it was, it was, it was <laughs> you know, you, you've got to respond in that instant. Um, and again, I think what we got from that first cohort was a lot of people who got that job simply because we were able to respond to that type of question. So what was the response? Um, well, my response was um, you could use like an old toothpaste tube and you peel the banana, you put the banana into the toothpaste tube and you can squirt it into your mouth. <laughs> so, <laughs> but it's one of those problems. It's kind of like, to me, it goes back to the Ray and Charles Eames report, um, design, um, Designing Design Education for India. They, instead of producing a big report on what the curriculum should be, they gave the Indian government three examples of design project I just think about that. You know, you've, you've done this work. I don't know what was it, a year and a half of study. They went around all the um, the different um, the sort of educational places and also the practice places in, in in India, and they came up with this tiny, thin, slim document. And to me, it's still one of the greatest pieces of um, sort of communication and design education. What was the year? What was, what was the year of that? Oh, goodness me! Oh, let me see. I've, I've got Zotero running as well. I'll be able to give you just right now. Let's see. I think it was sixty-seven or something like that. So. Oh. Before that, 58. Yeah. My God. Fantastic. 1958. I'll, I'll send you a link. Oh, great, you can share great. a link to that. The premise was I'm not going to tell you what to do. This isn't a guide on what to do, but we'll give you examples of project. Um, so, one of the projects, for example, was design a postal service. And just in that simple sentence, you have a level of complexity that goes beyond just, you know, make a stick that hits something or a really simple functional design object you know it has to be a system it has to be a service it has to interface with human behaviors and all that kind of stuff so that's kind of like what's nice about the how would you repackage a banana it's a non-trivial problem it's an open-ended problem of there course. is a no solution um b there's only ways to respond and i think that to me is still the fundamental difference between a designer and say an engineer or you know other practitioners we don't have a right answer we only have responses to problems we never ever ever solve problems um so so there we go. That was the interview question. And that, that's what got me into teaching design education. And when I started teaching design education, um, well, first of all, I didn't teach design education. That wasn't my role. And it's not what we do at the Open University. We don't teach. We force people to learn. That, that sounds a bit dogmatic, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> but it's kind of like we, we deliberately flip the model. You know, we flip that. We've done the flip classroom since. Yeah. 1971 you know you have to you're not there so the onus has to be on the learning um suddenly when you're in that mode of tuition supporting students to do that learning you have to actually understand how it is that people do design and you have to then understand how people can learn to be designers you have to make all of that explicit and i think there's a lot of implicit stuff that happens in the traditional 
education, studio education, that you don't have to almost interrogate your work. As long as designers come out the other end, nobody really kind of questions it. Um, so for me, that was the big, that was the big epiphany moment. That was a big transformation for me personally. Nobody had ever taught me, in seven years of architecture and education, nobody had ever taught me how to actually design. Nobody had actually sat down and said, you are being a designer. Not that this is the process you go through, but this is, if you like, the cognitive process you go through. Um, so yeah, that was a big epiphany for me. It completely converted me to different modes, if you like, of design education. And the fact that sometimes we can be a bit lazy as design educators and not interrogate what it is that we do because we just fall into the same behaviours of practice. Again, not all design educators mm-hmm. are like that. And there's masses of other issues around about design education, you know, the time that's given to staff to, to be able to do this in the first place, the fact that a lot of our practitioners and trying to be educators at the same time, you know, almost everything's stacked against you. So I'm really, really fucking lucky I've had that opportunity to be able to reflect on both my design practice, my education practice, and that those two things have kind of come together. So that was a really long-winded answer. I'll, I'll try not to talk so much. No, 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 please. This is <laughs> sorry, a flowing of uh, of thought, really, and consciousness. Hopefully. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, so I mean, the thing is, in in design education, we are creating an experience. Mm-hmm. Yep. So it's almost as if it's everything but the information. So in that, that, yep. that's the challenge, I guess. You know, because the because I mean. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that education has changed a lot, uh, and there is various conflictive views these days, which we'll go into a bit later on. But mm-hmm. when we are teaching design, we are creating an experience, mm-hmm. uh, and it's and it's almost things that are not uh, said because you cannot, for example, have a lesson plan. Mm-hmm. You know, I, we were all taught. Yep. I, I was. I, I did my uh, mm-hmm. uh, postgraduate uh, masters mm-hmm. in. Uh, in education, this is lesson plan and this and that. Of course, you cannot have a lesson plan because there's a dynamism in the way the students respond. So you might have mm-hmm. something else. You're actually responding on the fly. Yeah. So you created experience. Mm-hmm. How can how mm-hmm. can this happen in a in a in a long distance environment? Um, so first of all, I I hear what you're saying about the lesson plan, but I, I would have to disagree with that, and I'd have to disagree with it quite strongly mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because it's okay to say that. Well, let me I'll, I'll draw you a quick lesson plan here. Um, so basically, here's the lesson plan. We're going to start with the prompt yeah, here. Yeah. Something's going to happen in yeah, the middle. Yeah, stuff yeah. will happen at the end. Now, I think we can actually be a bit more confident and competent about those type of lesson plans. So let me give uh-huh. you an example. At the Open University, um, we will actually have quite prescriptive lesson plans at the start. <clears throat> but they will be deliberately prescriptive in the sense that they deliberately require multiple responses to come out. So that's where the experience thing comes in with Terrace. So you start with almost a, we we, we use a lot of design methods, for example. So we will give students quite a prescriptive design method because they've never experienced maybe a creative design process whatsoever. That's the other big thing about us as an institution. And one of the big different things, a lot of our students don't come from design backgrounds. They don't self-select. These are students that maybe um, are halfway through a career, halfway through a life and doing something completely different. So we can't assume they have any um, sort of creative prior knowledge whatsoever. 
So for them, this so you're is starting. You're starting from from zero. Yeah, absolutely. From In fact, sometimes we're actually starting from negative. Wow. We're actually starting. Well, think about it. We are having students who have come through an education system, maybe. 18 years in an education system where they are told there is one right answer, a single right answer. And we have to say to them, that's not necessarily true. We have to actually get them to relearn yes. and redo things. We can maybe yes. talk cool. about that a bit later. Yeah. So we have to give them a really guided process. Um, so we use design methods a lot. But just because you've got a lesson plan, it doesn't mean that there can't be, in fact, it's not. it doesn't mean that there it's not just a conditional thing. In design, there has to be an element of that plan that says, I don't know what's going to happen here. Or mm-hmm. this bit we can't plan for explicitly. But and this is the critical difference. Sorry, mate, I'm going to get really quite um, assertive about this yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah. It bugs me that as designers, we don't confront this a bit more positively and actually say, just because I don't know what I'm doing now, that doesn't mean that what I'm doing is worthless. It doesn't mean I'm ignorant. I am still going somewhere with this. And that's a different kind of planning. That's the difference between, I don't know, say, maybe there's a semantic thing here, so please forgive me. I don't know the literature. I don't know. I'm not too knowledgeable on this. It's maybe the difference between a learning objective, you know, something that's quite explicit, Mm -hmm. such as you will learn, you know, um, an outcome, yeah. Newton's first law, for example. Yeah, 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 exactly. Compared to a learning aim, which is you will get some experience of dealing with uncertainty. Yeah. Now, that to me is a designer's learning objective or learning aim. Of course. So a classic example would be where we have tried to use design methods to teach science, and it doesn't work where you yes. have an explicit learning outcome. Of course. But if you take away that explicit learning outcome and say, yes, but they will gain experience of the method of using science in a process, that's a completely different thing. Now, we need to get far better left terrace as design educators, speaking to normal education <laughs> colleagues and to administrators to say, <laughs> with all of that stuff, no, I can be confident about this uncertainty because uncertainty is useful, okay? A classic example is COVID-19. What we're doing just now necessarily has to deal with uncertainty. We have to. You can't not do that. Otherwise, you will end up with idiotic solutions. That's all I'm going to say on that. Yeah, no, absolutely. So we're really... really, Feeling the elephant from different from different angles, really. We're talking about the same mm-hmm. thing. Yes, absolutely. You're actually actualizing it and yes. talking about it as learning aims. Yeah, but uh, I think well, I think I was going to sum up and just do a, a summary lesson for educators on that. It's having that ability to be able to talk about that in ways that other people can understand. Because this is the other thing. If you speak to, say, an administrator on a university, and again, I don't mean to tar all administrators with the same brush, or maybe somebody that comes from a more deterministic education um, background or traditional education background, what we do can seem totally alien. And it's not appropriate in, say, other spaces. So again, I think us having better language or us being more confident about Mm. how we talk about our own pedagogies, our own ways of educating Mm. and practicing as well, Mm. um, I think is really quite important. And I think we should teach our students about that too, that as design practitioners, you know, again, another bugbear, you know, you show your client the last fancy picture that you did, the last great, and I did, did it as well when I had a my visualization business, when I had yeah. one small um, practice. You don't show the 99,000, you know, that big pile of sketches, the stuff that doesn't work, all the crap. You never show that. But that's where the king work is. 
That's yes. where the effort yes. is. So when you go to a client, the client says, is this it? <laughs> you know, it's almost as if we sell ourselves short by yes. not having better better words, better language, better ways of communicating the effort, the uncertainty, the complexity, the difficulty, the, you know, the hard effort that we put into design. We should not be ashamed of talking about that mm-hmm. far more assertively. Mm-hmm. Sorry. No, 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 absolutely. absolutely. No, no, absolutely, absolutely. Um, absolutely. It's, it's, it's hard for, for, for the clients. It's hard because then yeah, totally. uh, if you make them privy to the process, then they might even start t- uh, attacking the process and then they have to, uh, uh, then they're attacking the, the end result. Again, I have no problem with this. Well, personally speaking, but again, that's because I've been through the Open Universities method. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'll rephrase that because there are some design schools that do actually teach method as well. Yes. Well, I think we should be more open with clients about the processes and the methods that we go through because one of the things that I can do sometimes with my sketches, and I've done this with clients before, particularly in architecture, is to show them not failure as something that's a waste, but failure that's actually something that's constructive. So when a client says, well, why don't we do it this way? Mm-hmm. You can whip out the sketch and say, Absolutely. this is why. And in fact, we've actually, you know, latterly, particularly when I was working in building information modeling and digital prototyping, actually keeping in your digital prototypes, uh, prototypes that don't work or prototypes mm-hmm. that are good warnings as to not what to do because, you know, if you do this first, it will block out this opportunity or whatever it might be. Even just having that awareness of process is actually quite important. And I think we should teach that more in design. I don't think, and I hate to see it, I hate to see designers saying, you can't question me. I'm the designer. No, 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 no. no. My process is mysterious. Of course not. Um, There's nothing mysterious about about design thinking. And and, and for my clients, I'm extremely open about it. In fact, I take them to the process. Yeah, uh, exactly. You know, I'm the, and that to me is that's almost the next stage. I think of design cognition or design thinking. Um, again, I have a colleague Theo uh, Theodore Zamanopoulos at the Open University. Mm-hmm. That's his big thing. He would love to see the transformation that when you design, you empower everybody around about you. Oh, absolutely, You're no, actually I, empowering. I, yeah, I take it because they need to know the process because we are co-creating. Yeah, we are co-creating. I suppose the downside to that would be Lucy Kimball's criticism of not just design thinking, Mm. but also co-creation. It's the, just because, you know, there's nothing magical about the process. It doesn't mean that there's nothing special about what you do because you as a designer with, you know, I've got what, 25 years experience, that's quite a lot, of, of doing this as a process. That experience isn't nothing. You know, so that is valuable, but it doesn't mean that it's special in terms of unique. No, no, but if that makes sense. If yeah. absolutely, if we're talking about client and designer, then there is there's there's a body of knowledge that the designer can handle better, but there's also in, uh, some elements that the client knows better because it's about them. Yeah, sure. And it's mm-hmm. a combination of these two areas of knowledge that we're combining yeah. in the in the co-creation. Mm-hmm. But that's but that's the uh, the professional the professional side. Yep. How, so true. how can your your um, ideas and your experience, of course, in the Open University, help all those frustrated colleagues right now that um, are really uh, trying, including myself, of course, hard to make the best out of um, uh, teaching teaching online. Yeah, so that, that, that's the difficult one. And to be quite honest with you, Lefteris, I don't know. We've got a partial, I'm not going to even say solution to this, response to this, mm. um, but it's not perfect, simply because um, 
you know, we've done this from the start. So we start from a very different position. Our students know they're going to be taught at a distance from the start. Mm. So it's not, you cannot take what we do and just transplant it straight away. I think I've mentioned this to you before, you know, it can take us um, one to sometimes even three years to develop a single course, single module at the Open University. And it can cost millions of pounds. And I'm not exaggerating that. Eight millions of pounds. You know, we do TV production with the BBC in the UK. We do um, software development. We do interactive development. We do lots and lots and lots of stuff. Uh, a writing team on a module can, you know, go up to about 12 different authors and include many different peer reviews. It's a complex process. So there's no way that colleagues can pivot to that, you know, within a week, two weeks or three weeks. So I think we do need to break it down into stages. We've had an emergency response, what we can do within, you know, days, weeks. Um, so we've been trying to help colleagues by producing sort of recipes, quick guides on how to mm. do small things, little things, things that can, can help quickly. But again, we are almost not experts in doing that. <clears throat> We are experts in doing it in a particular way. So I think maybe that expertise might be useful when we come to the medium term and perhaps even the long, long term thinking. Um, because I think what we can do with our model, we could actually dial back a bit on the very high production values and we could you know, use that high production stuff for what it's good at doing. And then the more emergent and constructivist stuff, you know, the kind of the stuff as we were talking about earlier that you can't plan for, the studio stuff, the emergent stuff, that's the kind of stuff that might be more useful, I think, for, for colleagues um, in, in the medium term. Because that's mm. also stuff that we can, um, what shall we say, we can plan for and allow for, but we can't fully predict. Yes. Um, and we are, you know, to this day, we are still surprised by the stuff that our students come up with and the way that they can break our systems. I love it. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's absolutely great when somebody turns around and said, was I supposed to do this? How did you do that, man? How did you? Um, so, yeah, I think we can do a lot more of that and it'd be good if we could actually start to, I mean, this is what's going to be good for us. You know, it's not just us delivering our expertise to others, but it's how, it's almost how we are changed by working with other people um, in different contexts and different situations and how we can learn from that mm. and how we might be able to do things together with other colleagues. So that's an open invitation to anybody mm. that wants to mm. play with any of this stuff with us. It'd be, be great to try oh, some new stuff. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, in, your, in your experience through the uh, this, uh, long-distance teaching, uh, how does uh, uh, it enable students to, to go into, 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 into a career? Uh, into professionalism. Mm -hmm. So how, yep. how, what is that relationship between the long-distance teaching and, and professionalism and, and employment? So it's interesting you should ask that simply because we've actually just been doing some big research. I, I, I'm not going to be able to answer this fully, sure. but it would be good to do a follow-up answer in some Absolutely. way somehow because um, it's actually a couple of colleagues who are um, looking at that just now. The first thing is that... Um, <clears throat> Well, again, it touches on the issue of the fact that our students are different. We represent almost a complete spectrum of population of students. They don't necessarily want to be practicing designers mm -hmm. um, as a result of studying our course. They want to maybe use um, creative methods or we have a lot of business students, for example, do uh, the old overlap between business and creativity or art students who are maybe wanting to um, sort of inflect their um, sort of study of art into practice. 
Um, similarly, we also get a lot of teachers, believe it or not, um, either teaching art and design education or what we call techie education in the UK. Well, okay, until quite recently. Um, I'm showing my age there. That's, that's outrageous. Um, I'm a big believer in design as a mode of education for teachers because I think teaching is also quite a practice-based thing. Mm-hmm. Um, that's another issue. So we basically we get students from all walks of life almost using this. Um, again, as it was originally formulated at the OU as design cognition, as design methods, you know, it's the forerunner to design thinking. And it's a, it's a slightly different formulation of design thinking um, in that it goes back to that black box model we talked about. It's the, it's the less prescriptive process. Mm. So by the time our students graduate, we hope that they can almost approach any problem. And I don't mean that, they can, that they've got the knowledge to solve any problem or to have the expertise to deal with any problem, but that they won't freeze, you know, they won't panic when they come across a complex problem, that they will be able to sit down and say, right, what is it that I need to do about this? Or how might I start to explore it? Or how might I play with it? Or how might I, you know, they've got this massive toolbox, this massive toolkit that they graduate with, a toolkit of competencies, of beliefs, of attitudes, of skills. It's not just, and it's certainly not the skills, and it's certainly not Thinking Photoshop skills, okay? Sorry, I don't know. Of course not. No, no, of course not. But I'm talking about, yes. you know, uh, yeah. profession, the, the transition. So, so of course, of course, mm-hmm. some are studying design for other reasons, yeah. Or, or no, absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. Can yeah. help, can help students go into many careers because design yep. is, a, is a is a way of, of thinking and doing. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, one of our successful students in England uh, made uh, an amazing pub, really, really successful mm-hmm. pub. So, he yep. designed the, uh, so yeah, we of course we have quite a few of those as well. We have quite a few examples of students who have just gone on to do these kind of like really weird and slightly different things, and also a lot of so, for example, um, online content producers you know there isn't a course for how to be an online content producer so having and i think quite a few design schools are doing this now having a kind of almost like a general sort of studio approach to say well whatever it is you want to do we've got the the mode if you like Mm. to help Mm. you Mm. investigate that Mm. that that to me is what's so exciting about the way that we're thinking about design um as a mode of education just now that's that's what's interesting it's almost like Mm. design and as a kind of way of doing things, but we also do some traditional stuff as well. Um, no, I, I fully, I fully agree. Uh, but to, to go back to the, how do we actually go yep. from those that wish to go into a career, those that wish mm-hmm. to have a career in design, how do they go on about using the distance learning process into 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 getting portfolios, into getting uh, more advanced uh, for formulation in their profession. Um, I'm not too sure. I I think there's not that much difference from a traditional. You know how 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 does an architect say put what they learn in a college into practice? Mm -hmm. I think the big difference for me would have been well go back to first of all that normal population again, and also because our students come from that background, a lot of them tend to either be already working and studying part-time or have maybe transitioned from one higher education experience to another or maybe are looking for employment opportunities or maybe are in completely different situations. So again, one of the parts, one of the most important aspects of our learning model is that students are necessarily bringing their context 
to the learning. So they're almost like bringing their own expertise in some ways to the learning. And we have a lot of students that will then you know, go back into that context. So for example, they mm. could be, say, in an architectural practice, but they're working as an architectural technician or mm-hmm. an engineering technician. And they're taking a design you know, one of our modules to enhance that and they'll maybe progress in their careers as a result of that or they'll maybe use it as a way to transition from one um, employment to another. Mm. So it's almost it's almost kind of like intertwined in a way that we can't, it's almost the black box again that we almost can't predict um, but yes. we can support because we know what the aims are rather than the outcomes, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I'd say it, it, it can vary quite considerably. Brilliant. So if we could sort of do design education differently, if we could build from scratch, you know, what would you keep, replace, remove, add? Would you change anything? I have no idea how to answer that question, Lefteris, because it's one of those horrible, if you weren't you and you didn't know what you already know, no, I know, I know. Design, design up a university from scratch or any university. Or the open university, right? Or, or any university from scratch. Or if you would, could build the ideal university. What would you do differently? Um, again, the, the the from scratch thing, I do, I, I do struggle with that a little bit. Simply mm-hmm. because I think we are all we are all products of our own mistakes. Mm-hmm. We're all products of like the previous generation's mistakes. It's almost as if left tennis. Like I almost needed to rebel against even just me saying I was never taught how to design. You know, that's me almost being critical of my education but in actual fact my education was actually exceptionally privileged um you know the fact that i have turned out to be able to say that is tanta- you know that's a credit to the educational system that i went through so i think there is this kind of necessary thing um this necessary process almost of us using sort of past mistakes to create what the future is going to be mm-hmm. now one of the problems we have just now is that that works up to a point, but once you get to certain population size, like 8 billion people on the size of this planet, and you have then suddenly a critical event, such as what's happening just now, that kind of system is quite a long sort of process and system. Um, so the one big thing that I would change to shortcut this, and actually I did a TED talk on this one um, recently, because fundamentally we are unsustainable as a species because of that. You know, Our population is almost necessarily well, it's not necessarily going to crash. It's going to crash because of the decisions we make. You know, we could theoretically support an 11 or 13 billion population on this planet quite easily. The numbers are there to be able to do it. But we choose not to. And we don't necessarily choose not to consciously. We choose for a load of bad reasons. And you can see that playing out in certain countries around the world. I won't mm-hmm. name any countries whatsoever. Absolutely, absolutely. But you can see that where um, people are stopping forming their own ideas and opinions or forming um, opinions in different ways. So the big change I would make, and this is one thing that we could do within a very short generational timescale, we could move design education from higher education right back into primary education. Mm. One, because it's already there, okay? We just don't express it. And this is the point, that the summation, the culmination of a good higher education and design education is the recognition of what you do as being valuable. We don't. We do the opposite in primary schools and secondary schools. At some point in that process, we say drawing with coloured pencils is wrong. Only drawing Absolutely. with blue ink or black Absolutely. ink and writing Absolutely. on lined paper is correct. Absolutely. And we apply these... 
we don't say that explicitly even. This is the worst bit. It's in it's like in every little bit of body language. You you can't respond to this question by using a picture. You've got to do it this way. Yes. It's almost implicit in everything. Now, if we stop doing that and we actually recognise the value of certain processes way back in primary school education, and that's supposed to be what's happening in some curriculum, such as Scotland, for example, the curric- curriculum for excellence, one of the five pillars of that is supposed to be creativity. Um, it'd be great to see that valued as equally to writing, reading, numeracy, all of, of those course. other things as well, because it is as valuable. And it's simply because it's ubiquitous. We automatically change our environment around about us all the time anyway. We automatically design day in, day out. But we don't necessarily develop the competencies to design well or to take it further, mm-hmm. to do better. And I think if we actually started developing that, you would automatically generate uh, education or a, a cohort in an education system that were enabled as self-learners, as self-critiquers, as more critically enabled, shall we say, thinkers uh, and, and learners further up the chain. Yep. Absolutely. No, I've been saying it, that, that, that the, 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 the root of all the challenges we're facing with students in higher education needs, is yep. to be found in exactly. the early years. Yep. That's, that is for sure. Precisely. And, and, and that's purely for the fact that uh, the, the world that education is preparing students for doesn't exist anymore. No, and that, I, I, that, comes in, that comes in many, 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 many no. levels and it goes yeah. very, very deep. Yeah. Uh, and that's... Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's, it's, yeah. It's, it's, it's like that. And you've been doing these wonderful um, uh, open discussions on distance learning. I think you're having one this Friday? We have, yep. We've got one tomorrow. Could you tell us a bit Uh, more about that? Absolutely. The one Friday is going to be interesting. Um, So Friday, hopefully. Yep, so it's tomorrow at 3.30, UKBST. Um, We can stick a link to the events. Yes, please. It'll be too late by the time this goes out. Um, Sorry, We'll we'll try try and and forward it a bit, yeah. uh, Cool. Yeah, no, that'd be good. Tell, us, tell us about how that began. Tell us about the, the beginning, uh, the first, second, third episodes, and uh, what we're going to see tomorrow. Sure. So, again, one of the ways we tried to sort of support colleagues early on was to try to just have meetups just to discuss um, or just to find out what issues were. Again, it's, it's the classic. We could sit and turn around and ask, what do we think it is that people are having problems with? Mm. But that's, that's an old-fashioned way of designing <laughs> Everyone to think of it that way. Mm-hmm. You're far better to just see what the problems are mm-hmm. and ask people what the problems are. Um, and so many issues came out in that first discussion. It was more of an open discussion. Um, so the second one, the follow-up one, was on, um, I think it was on supporting students. I can't remember, actually, now. Um, no, it was on assessment. Um, uh, and then the third one, uh, I think that was on, I think that was hosted by a... Yeah, Leslie Ann hosted mm. that one. Mm. I can't remember what the subject was. That's terrible. I'm oh, again, oh, it's all blurring into one. But anyway, tomorrow's one is going to be interesting because we will be trying to look at what comes next. I think we need to transition from this mode of we've tried to do things in an emergency and people have been coping really well. But I think people are starting to realise just how tiring it is mm. to replicate proximate practice at a distance. So for example, one of the things we would never do at the Open University is proximate practice. You know, we would never have <clears throat> constant one-to-one synchronous communication with students because it's exhausting for everybody. Um, 
you have to stagger it. You have to stage it in particular ways. So I think we maybe have to come up with some kind of medium-term plan as a community. It would be lovely to do it as a community so that not everybody is having to reinvent the wheel every single time. Um, you know, because if we are now isolated in certain ways as educators in a way that we have never been isolated before, um, we really need to come together as a larger community so that we get benefits of scale, benefits of using open educational resources. And then we maybe need to look a bit further into the, the, the future, maybe a bit longer term. And again, this is maybe where our expertise at designing curriculum, at planning, as you say, experiences, left terrace, might come in. I mean, I would really love to, maybe in a few weeks' time, start maybe doing almost design workshops for curriculum. I think it'd be really nice to take it, you know, a problem. The way that we design our curriculum is by designing it. You know, we of do course. take a design approach to it. it. It kind of comes very naturally um, to us as educators, design educators. So it'd be nice to to try and play with that over the next... So that's what we're going to be talking about tomorrow. Got some interesting prompt stuff. We've also got actually some really nice prompt articles. There's um, five or six articles um, sort of discussing this. How do we move from responding in an emergency to responding a bit more strategically, planning stuff out um, by different design educators, sometimes distance ed just distance educators. Um, there's a nice one by Lorraine Marshallsey. Um, she's got an article, I'm going to be putting a link up to that a bit later, just reflecting on her pivot from proximate education because a few colleagues have said just how much they miss the studio. They miss it emotionally, they miss it physically, they miss being with students, they miss drawing, they miss sketching. Um, that's a thing, okay? That's a really important thing. We can't not acknowledge what we've lost um, so it'll be good to actually reflect on what we've lost, maybe what we've gained, maybe what we could do more of. You know, the classic kind of reflection thing. So that's the plan for tomorrow. So please, that's very exciting. everybody would be welcome. Yes, yes quite good. We, will, we will spread the word. It's very, 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 very exciting. So tell us how our viewers and listeners can find more about you and your work. Um, so, yeah, well, the blog just now is probably the best first place. I've only recently... <laughs> set it up as well so I haven't even memorized the, um, the URL so it's uh, yep design oh sorry distance design education.com um, so yeah if you have a, a look at that that's 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 more about the work I suppose mm -hmm. than than me and I'm absolutely fine with that um, mm -hmm. I think it's the work that's a, the, the more important and the more interesting thing and again that's not my work that's the collective so please collective. anybody that absolutely anybody that wants to get involved anybody that wants to contribute um, you know, I think now more than ever, we need to be sharing as much as we possibly can. And please don't think you have to be an expert in this. You're an expert, as you said earlier, Left Terrace, you know, with respect to the client. You're an expert in what you experience. You're an expert in what you feel or are going through in this process. So, yeah, we need those voices and perspectives too. <clears throat> absolutely, absolutely. So any, any other comments or anything you'd like to leave us with? Uh, anything sort of to contribute? Mm, that's a big one no I'm not too sure um, I think I suppose it would be just to reinforce maybe some of the things I've already mentioned um, I mean particularly with what we're doing with this pivot I know it's difficult to look at this as an opportunity um, again I would maybe kind of flip it slightly it's not that I'm trying to be optimistic about things or, or doing the kind of and I, I don't like sometimes to see that in, in designers where you're almost aggressively optimistic to the point of ignoring 
you know, sometimes what is a pretty pessimistic context that some people you, are but in. But you have to but, be optimistic to be a designer. You know, it's, exactly. a, it's a very, it's a, it's such a tough, such, such a tough job that if you're not optimistic, totally. then there's well, no way is, you can be one. This is the thing. I mean, that again, to go back to that TED talk, one of the things that I would like to give to students in primary school would be a series of cognitive superpowers. And one of them I've called an optimism switch. You're absolutely right, Lefteris. You have to be able to switch that on right there as soon as your client asks or a student asks. And you have to be able to say, how could the world be different? And there is no, you know, you can do that pessimistically too, but you have to be able to say, how might this be different? Because that's your job as a designer. I think the key comes in switching that superpower off and going back to being a pragmatist or a pessimist mm-hmm. and saying, right, what needs to be done to make this work? Because it can't just be pure optimism. Because otherwise you get these really crappy superficial designs, and I hate them. I'm seeing so many just now. Um, <clears throat> just these not really optimistic. Not in that way. <laughs> no, not in that way. Overly optimistic. Unrealistic, let's say. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah. Uh, yeah, a few superpowers would be would be quite good mm. just now. Mm. What about what about the idea that current research tends to take into consideration only recent findings? Mm-hmm. And I understand that uh, you and I are also inspired by um, other findings from from the past by combining the best of all worlds. Yep. Uh, how how could that help us today? Um. No, yeah. Totally, and yeah, thanks for the prompt on that one as well, Terrace. Yeah, I think you're talking about some of the, the work that we talked about last time, which goes back to the 60s and 70s. Um, yeah, because there is nothing new to this. This is the weird thing, you know, you're, with, with design thinking or design methods or design cognition, whatever you call it, you know, we are repeating the same things time and time and time again. Mm. And I think it, it's, it would be good to recognise that a bit more so that when we do come up with something new, we do recognise that we are actually building on some of this work. Um, and I think that's starting to happen slowly, and particularly in design education in some circles just now. We are starting to refer more to previous work, and it means that we're referring to our own, if you like, work, and recognising that we're actually starting to build it up as a body of knowledge. Mm. And it means that other colleagues it's harder for them to dismiss us because it's very easy sometimes to dismiss a lot of design education research because sometimes it's it's not as critical as it could be or sometimes, and I'm guilty of this too, well, it's not guilty. It, it's simply a matter of our practice. Mm-hmm. You're sometimes a practitioner, you're a teacher, and then having to engage in scholarship as well, that is so difficult. You're, that's three Absolutely. languages, okay? You've got your practitioner language, you have your teaching language, yeah. and then suddenly you've got to learn all these big words or different ways of doing things to put it into formal research. I'd love to help colleagues do that a bit better as well, because even just writing a good design case is hard. You know, look at Elizabeth Bowling's work on that. That's fantastic stuff because it helps practitioners write a case. Just simply say, this is what I did. This is what I think you can learn from it. Um, so it's been difficult for us as design educators and design researchers to do that. And it means that other education researchers, they, you know, they have time to do some of these things. Um, they maybe don't have that uh, sort of spread. And it's been easy to dismiss design education as something that's the black box again that you can't describe. Um, and I think what's exciting about more recent 
educational research, like the sticky curriculum stuff from Susan Orr, from others, from mm-hmm. Lorraine Marshall, say, and so on and so forth, these conceptual ideas of what design is, they are really helping to articulate the complexity and contradiction, if you like, in design education in a much more mature way. And they're using existing bodies of knowledge to do that. And that's really exciting. I think it's actually good time for design education in, in some ways. Well, it was until, you know, the proverbial hit the mm, fan. Mm. But maybe that's a good thing too, because I'm seeing so many good reflective accounts of what's happening. This is making people stop and say, oh, shit. How do I actually do this? How am I going to teach at a distance? What happens if I am not there? I think a lot of people are actually starting to come up with some really, really articulate and interesting reflective pieces to what is a really difficult thing to do. So, yeah, interesting times. Wow. That's that's fantastic. Uh, Thank you so much. We will be publishing this today so that uh, it can be you can go into the into the fourth episode of uh, tomorrow's event. So it'll be we're cool. much looking forward to this. That'll be a good timing then. So yeah, we'll make sure it's, it's cross posted and we'll. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, no, thank, thank you. So you it's thank been you. great to chat. Yeah. Thank you. Okay.